Okay, so you're looking at some blocks right here. And with our study of eschatology, the question is when the millennium will take place. When, uh, that is, the question is when Christ will return. Before the millennium, after the millennium, will there even be a millennium? Some people don't believe so. So follow me here. Um, use Just use your creative imagination. So here we go. The green block is the church age. The yellow block that's standing up on edge, in my estimation, in my view, would be the rapture of the church. The church goes up. Christ comes down in the air. The church meets him in the air and goes back up to heaven with Christ. The triangle is the tribulation period. The other yellow block on end would be Christ with the church coming back to earth, and he sets up his kingdom, the blue block. After the, the kingdom age, we have um, the loosing of Satan, the great white throne judgment, and it all consummates in the new heaven and new earth. And I've just used a number of blocks to kind of show that. Now, here's what happens in eschatology. Some people will say the rapture is the same thing as the second coming of Christ. They happen at the same time. Or they may say the rapture doesn't take place until the middle of the tribulation or the pre-wrath rapture. Uh, and the wrath would be the wrath of God upon humanity. Some people will say, don't, don't drop the rapture. <laughs> we don't want to drop the rapture. Okay. Some people will say, here's the millennium. The, millenni the millennium occurs after the return of Christ. So we have a pre-millennial return of Christ. Others will say, no, no, no. The millennium occurs before the return of Christ. And the world gets better, and then Christ comes back to a happy world. Listen to the naysayers. My goodness. Okay. So the issues in eschatology are about timing. They're about the events. Some people will say, you know what? The millennium just isn't clear. We're not even sure that there is a millennium. Or if there is a millennium, let's just put it here with the church age. And that, you know, that will be the time that Christ is reigning. Maybe Christ is reigning in heaven. Maybe Christ is just reigning in people's hearts on earth. But we really don't see a throne of David, uh, the exaltation of the, of the people of Israel and all of that. So those are the issues in eschatology. Questions? I like the truth pre-trip myself. <laughs> Let's switch this path. Yeah, yeah. Box. Switch the box back. Move the yellow one back in front of the box. Put the return. Second time over. Excuse me. Excuse me. Don't mess this up like that. Don't try this with your grandkids. Okay. Okay, so the, so the issues in eschatology are, is there a millennium? If there is a millennium, when does Christ return? Uh, now, I, I haven't specifically talked about it, but I think uh, some of you did in terms of 
when will the rapture occur? Well, I guess I did talk about, does the rapture occur uh, before the tribulation period? Does it occur in the middle of the tribulation period? Will it occur at the end of the tribulation? Is it distinct from the second coming of Christ? Okay, and I'm going to show you more charts like this that people have constructed to explain their particular view of eschatology. But I also want to read with you various visions of Christ from the book of the Revelation to John. And I read the first one with you a number of weeks ago. I intended to read this one last week and in everything else that was going on failed to do so. So let me go to chapter five. Revelation. Revelation chapter five. And the reason I want to read these major visions of Christ is stated in chapter one. Look, I guess I'll, I'll go there first. The, this book starts this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. I believe the revelation to John is a revelation about the Lord Jesus to the church. And we will see a number of major visions about Christ in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 14, chapter 19. Yes, Fred. Yeah, it's one of the biggest controversies surrounding this word soon. Yes. Because soon takes place. It will soon take place, yes. And go ahead with your... But, uh, those who say, there are those who say, I used to believe this way, but the word soon uh, leads me to believe that it would have to take place within a few years of mm -hmm. the time it was given to John. Mm -hmm. And uh, that seems to be where they, that word soon is seem, seems to be where they fall off. Okay, so it, it can be troublesome to us. Can I delay the answer oh, to that absolutely. question absolutely. until we get actually to the book? Um, it's a great question. And <laughs> okay, chapter five, here we go. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with the seven seals. Now, this is a picture of God the Father. Look at chapter 4. And uh, we have him on his throne and so forth. And he is proclaimed worthy. I saw in his right hand this scroll. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Well, who is worthy to open the scroll? and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So we have a picture of God the Father in heaven uh, surrounded by <coughs> creatures, um, surrounded by angels, in his majesty, in his glory, and in his hand is a book of judgment and it's sealed. The question is who is worthy to open it? And no one, no one was found worthy. 
And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Woo! That's good stuff. Notice how he's introduced. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That takes us back to Genesis 49. The root of David, that takes us to 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17, the Davidic covenant, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. How did he conquer? By dying and resurrecting. Hmm. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was introduced with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Wow. The lamb, the suffering servant given to us by Isaiah, the lamb that was slain alone is worthy to dispense the judgment of God on pagan humanity. The lamb that died for their sins alone is worthy to dispense judgment. Yes, Jean? Yes, so this, in my estimation, uh, would be during the tribulation period. This is a a vision of heaven, and John is receiving it. Um, I believe chapters 4 through 19 talk about the tribulation period, which would be the little triangle, the little red triangle there. Okay, now... I do not intend to confuse you with the following slides. However, 
It's, <laughs> it's just a disclaimer. Okay. One of the things that, as I recall studying this, the church is not mentioned after three uh, up until 19. So four through 19, the church is already gone. So that gives some credence to the rapture. Yes. Yes, there are a number of, of reasons for that, and we are going to talk about those more, yes. more explicitly. Okay, so here we go. Here are the millennial views and interpretations. So you've got the position, the definition, and then the method of interpretation. Remember, I've been talking about covenant theology and dispensational theology. That will come into play here. There are people uh, who are all millennial. Take, take away the take away the millennium, okay? Or they say maybe it's part of the church age or whatever, okay? So for these people, in their mind, there is no literal or physical or geographical or national reign of Christ on earth in Jerusalem. In the end, he will come to judge and establish his eternity. So they would be post-millennial, if well, they, they they would just be post. Okay, there there really wouldn't be a millennial uh, millennial uh, kingdom. Their interpretation uh, would be mostly allegorical, and uh, they would say that scripture has dual meanings, and um, okay, I, I won't I won't go any further there. In the post millennial position. Christ will come only after the gospel has triumphed and ushered in a golden age of world peace, worldwide peace. So they would look at the tribulation period. Um, well, they would look at the church age becoming uh, the time for Christ to reign in heaven or in the hearts of people. The propagation of the gospel would improve the church's position in the world, and when everything is right and set up, Christ returns and enjoys um, his triumph. They, they also interpret the scripture allegorically, and the kingdom would be mostly spiritual for them. For premillennialists, Christ will return bodily and reign for a literal 1,000 years, and there will be a literal tribulation period, an Armageddon, and the Antichrist. The method of interpretation is mostly literal. I don't know why they said mostly. I think it is just just literal. Okay, and and a literal interpretation is able to deal properly with every kind of scripture, whether it's parable or prophecy or legal, or hymnic, or whatever. Fred? Now, with that said, would it not be true that on an all-millennium or post-millennium, there's really no need for a current-day Israel at all? That would not, uh, that would really not figure into the mix, would it? Okay, so you've really touched on a great point, and the, the point is whether or not Israel has a future. And for those of us who believe in the millennium, uh, and in the new covenant and what Christ will do in coming and 
instituting that new covenant and restoring Israel to its land and fulfilling the promises made to them uh, through the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. Uh, yes, that's, that is the point. Or, in fact, does the church become the recipient of all of those promises and the church then benefit and uh, enjoy the promises that God made with Israel? That's, that is another way of looking at the question of eschatology. Would that yes. be the replacement theology? Yes, yes, replacement theology. Say that well, there are, and again, uh, brothers and sisters, there are some very fine people that would hold to this position. Um, and, yes, Matt. I'm going to return to that point. Christ, when he came into Jerusalem, about last week, he mm-hmm. told them that your kingdom was taken from you Mm-hmm. And that's how an all millennial would repeat that the Jews, that the kingdom was taken from them. In fact, the whole uh, rapture is more like the, when they put it at the end there, the day of the Lord, because in the Roman world, the, when the Roman armies went out to war and they won a big battle, mm-hmm. they would come back to the city. Mm-hmm. They would wait outside the city for you know, about a mile out. They would send messengers into there and tell them we're here. The leaders would get the city ready. Then, when it was all ready, they would blow trumpets. The citizens of Rome would go out to the army there. They would join to get the first procession, and they were all coming together. That is what they would consider like the rapture. Christ is coming down from heaven. He draws us up. Um, at the same time, he comes down to execute judgment. Now, Christ, when he came the first time, he was coming into uh, Jerusalem, he's outside still, coming down from Bethpage, and the people started waving palm branches and, you know, told down the highest, which is Salem. He came into the city, the people, the leaders rejected him, and he, and he gave the, he told your house is left in desolate, and he told the story of the, of the tenants. He said, your nation's taken from you, you give it to another. Now, he's coming again with a triumphal entry. Mm-hmm. And that's what the rapture is, and this, the day of the Lord, that's why they put that together. He's coming again, and then he's going to this time, and the people are saying, like you see in, in chapter 7, it says, salvation to our God. These people, a multitude, there's the Jews, 144,000, and there's a multitude that no one can number. From okay. all nations saying, salvation to our God. It's kind of like what was supposed to happen then, is now happening now. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Um, so y- you're understanding that people can look differently at, at the eschatological events. Um, the rapture can be um, identified with the second coming of Christ, or it can be looked at distinctly. As, as we look at the, the Bible passages regarding the rapture, which, which I would take to be first... Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, I think they they say enough different things from the second return of Christ that I, I would hold them to be distinct. Some people would not. Um, Matt has brought in the historical background and the, the Roman practice and so forth of, of receiving a, a successful conqueror. 
Um, and there are some parallels there. How, how much do the parallels play into the people's understanding? Well, they would be aware of them. Um, that, that doesn't necessarily force our hand to interpret the Bible one way, but it does give us a background, an understanding of how the people might see it. What, what we want to be careful to do here is to not let history um, speak for God. God will speak history for us. Okay, uh, we want we want to be sure that that our cultural and geographical and historical sideline studies help us understand the 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 milieu in which the scriptures were given, but they don't demand us to understand the scripture in, in that particular way. God can speak in a culture, using the culture, but nece not necessarily uh, agreeing with the culture. Okay? So, in other words, the word of God is transcultural. And it is not bound by the culture. Uh, let me... Uh, uh, venture into deep water here. Some people will look at at um, feminism and the passages in the scriptures regarding men and women's roles in ministry and say, well, those are all culturally bound. So we understand that in that culture, um, uh, women were degraded, men were exalted, it was patriarchal and, and so forth and so on. So that's how we understand those passages. I would say no. God used a patriarchal society, but what he said is patriarchal. And we don't want the culture to demand that the scriptures be understood contrary to what this, the scriptures actually say. I don't think I'm being very clear there, but I think you're getting the idea. Are you getting the idea? Yes. Yeah. OK, let me go to the ne next slide. These are end-time viewpoints. So there is a premillennial view, which is historic. Uh, George Ladd, who was a fine New Testament theologian, and he taught in California. Fine theolo I have his theology. Great theology. George Ladd would be a historic premillennialist. And um, so, so look at that blue line. Uh, that's not as clear as I would like it to be. So we've got the church age, we have the tribulation of seven years, then the Jews, or excuse me, Jesus goes up and comes down, there's the rapture, and then the millennium. So in, in George Ladd's view, the rapture occurs after the tribulation, and the rapture and, and the second coming of Christ are pretty much the same event. Okay? Look at the all-millennial view. Now, the all-millennial view, the red diagram we have the church age and we really just don't see a kingdom do we we don't see Christ reigning anywhere necessarily it's just the church age and then Jesus comes back and and it finishes in heaven okay uh, look at the post-millennial view we have the church age and the church age ushers in the golden age which is the best part of the church age which would be equated with the millennium and then Jesus comes back and everything goes to heaven. Or we have the modern 
premillennial view, which we have the church age. Jesus takes the church up to heaven, followed by the tribulation. Jesus comes back, followed by the millennial kingdom, and then we go to the new heaven and new earth. Are you confused yet? I hope not. Okay. Well, let me try it again. Here's another chart. Okay. So we've got the post-tribulational premillennialism. Oh, boy. So in this scheme, Christ comes back after the tribulation. So you see the cross. You have the church. Then the tribulation. Uh, Christ comes back after the tribulation and uh, before the millennium. So it's a premillennial scheme. Uh, the pre-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism. And this would be the position that I hold to, uh, and probably many of you as well. We have the coming of Christ, the church age, uh, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, followed by the second coming with Christ, uh, or with the church of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, and then the last judgment. The yellow one, post-millennialism. And again, the church age moves into or ushers in or, or creates uh, an environment for the millennium. And then um, the second coming and the judgment. Or then finally at the bottom, again, amillennialism. So there's a symbolic or a spiritual millennium during the church age. Again, whether it's in heaven or in the souls of, of the saints on earth. And then everything ends at the back. Okay, now let's let's try and and bring uh, these things together and give you uh, some definitions and some understanding. Okay, so in amillennialism, let's talk about amillennialism. Okay, so the privative a or alpha in Greek um, is a prefix that expresses negation. So the privative A was adopted by Latin, Greek, and from, or, uh, yeah, by Latin from Greek and from Latin to <coughs> Spanish and into other Romance languages. So this this privative A means no, and thus this view maintains that there will not be a literal earthly reign of Christ either before or after His coming. This view stresses a symbolic or figurative approach to the interpretation of prophecies relating to the future rather than to a more literal approach. Um, J. Daniel Hayes is a modern <clears throat> scholar, and his book, The Message of the Prophets, is part of a series uh, that he has written uh, as an overview of the scriptures and his approach to understanding the scriptures. Thus, for all, millenn all uh, mill millenarians, the thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 uh, do not refer to a literal kingdom here on earth, but rather symbolizes the heavenly reign of Christ with Christians who have already died and gone to be with Christ. And Hayes then tells us, typically, all millenarians maintain that all the future promises regarding Israel in the Old Testament prophets will ultimately be fulfilled by the church. Okay, let's turn to Revelation 20. <clears throat> I want to read it and make just a couple of comments, and maybe you have a comment or a question also, and then we'll continue with our 
study of the various views on the millennium. So this is the key passage on the millennium. If, you're, if you see a millennium taking place in the future, it's because you're reading this passage. If you don't see one, you have to deal with this passage in a way um, that allows that interpretation. Okay, Revelation 20, let's look at verses 1 through 6. Now this is John speaking. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, for a millennialist, you know, they, they, have a, they have the problem of this passage saying, uh, uh, giving us a temporal phrase, 1,000 years, six times. And, and so they will have to say something like, that's a long period of time. Uh, it is a period of time. Or maybe it's just an era or an age. Um, but they will not take it as literally 1,000 years years uh, time span okay so uh, and and they can go to various passages to try and support their position we'll probably talk about that more when we get to Revelation 20 Um, but this is that passage that specifically talks about a millennium a 1,000 year period yes so the amillennials, generally speaking, that they arrive, they they are able to arrive at these conclusions or that thought because of basically their hermeneutics. They've never agreed uh, to the well. We again, by our standard, the hermeneutics of literal interpretations and so forth, and how to divide the word and so forth. That's that's the issue that. Okay, so they'll go to Peter. Peter says, with the Lord, Uh one day is as a thousand years, right? Yeah. Okay, so so they they see that giving them uh, justification license uh, to to not look at the one thousand year time frame in Revelation twenty as literal. Okay. 
Yes, how do, they, how do they get beyond the point? They say it happens in, in heaven, but yet the first I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Yes. They're saying that it happens in heaven, but yet the scripture says I saw this angel coming out of heaven. Okay, so they they could possibly argue from the overarching kingdom of God. God is always king. And um, maybe this kingdom rule of Christ is like that. Maybe it's not a literal Davidic throne, but it's just the overarching kingdom of God. So whether it's in the hearts of people on earth or whether it's with the saints who are already in heaven, they're okay with that. And they might argue spiritually that way. Matt? Uh, if you look at church history, the first three centuries, they held that uh, historical premillennial view. The people thought Christ was coming, the letters of Paul, mm -hmm. uh, especially among Jewish Christians, the Judaizers, the Ebionites, the Allegoi, they held that. And because of the word soon, the Greek word entoxe means fast, speed, right away. And they thought Christ was coming. When that didn't happen in those 300 years with all that persecution, things started to get better. They were persecuted so much. St. Augustine came up with this view here, this all-millennial view. That's kind of his work. And for a thousand years, that was pretty much the, what the church held to. Yes. Until a guy named Nicholas of Lyra, a monk in the 12th century, kind of changed it to a different, called distortion view. Which is, when you read it, it's foolish. Okay? Jonathan Edwards took on what the post-millennial, because the church was spreading, the modern missionary movement was going to the William Carey all around the world, missionary movements were happening. So they thought it was going to be a post-millennium. We were going to usher in the, the millennial Christ. You know? <coughs> so it's all in the context. If you read church history, you see how it, it changes over and over. Because when there's a positive atmosphere, it changes more to a post-millennium or something like that. When it's negative and there's persecution and there's trouble going on, like right now, the message mm -hmm. today, yes. we hold more to a premium. We're like, okay, we, want, we need to be rescued more. Okay, wonderful, wonderful observation. D did you hear what Matt was observing here? Okay, so sometimes people interpret the scriptures according to their own era, according to what's going on in their own day and age. Um, that's not very solid ground upon which to interpret the scriptures. Okay, so, uh, and uh, as I've looked backward into the 1800s and, and the early 1900s and the great Bible conference era, uh, the uh, rise of Bible institutes and, and so forth. The, even the early founding of the, of the seminaries in America in the 1700s, um, all of these uh, contributed to the positive approach to eschatology at the end of the 18th century, or 1800s and the early 1900s. Um, what was going on? Well, we were in a, a, a milieu of, of evolutionary thinking, that man is coming of age, that man is God's, or not even God's best creature, he's just the best creature. And we're pretty smart stuff, you know? We're sophisticated, we've got this, you know, this whole world thing in hand, um, so there's evolutionary thinking. There was a great missionary movement, wonderful missionary movement at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. 
And we Westerners thought we would help the rest of the world out with our Western culture and the gospel. And you've got the evolutionary thinking, you've got the gospel going out, and then World War I hit. And you had Christian nations, so-called Christian nations, fighting against Christian nations, and post-millennialism died in the trenches, as one author says, of World War I. Now, that can happen again. It can rise up again if people move to and fro with the wiles of the time. Uh, our question is, what, what do the scriptures say and how do we best interpret them? What hermeneutic can we use that will... Uh, 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 what's, what word do I want? Uh, um, transcend and go beyond any age. All right. So the all-millennial understanding of eschatology. Eschatos, of course, is a Greek word. It's, a, it's an adjective uh, that means last or final. So then, the study of the prophetic passages about the end times. That's eschatology. It's the study of the prophetic passages about the end times. Their understanding would be these following points. The kingdom is in existence now between Christ's two advents. Since Christ is ruling now from heaven, he will not reign on the earth for a supposed 1,000 years. The kingdom is either the church on earth or the saints in heaven. And you can see we've got some, you know, some heavyweight theologians here. Benjamin Warfield, wow, what a theologian. Yeah, he wrote on the scriptures, and, and his book on the, on the inspired scriptures is something uh, that, that you... Is that the Invisible War? Did you talk about that book? No. Uh, his book on um, bibliology, on, on the Word of God. Uh, the number 1,000 for them would be symbolic, indicating a long period of time. Number three, the promises to Israel regarding a land, a nationality, and a throne are being fulfilled now in a spiritual way among believers in the church. God's promises to Israel, number four, were conditional and have been transferred to the church because the nation did not meet the condition of obedience to God. I think Matt spoke to that. Number five, Christ is ruling now in heaven where he is seated on the throne of David and Satan is now bound between Christ to advance. Okay, now I've, I've got issues here. I don't see Christ being bound right now. I think he's still deceiving the world. Um, and I think that, excuse me, I'm sorry, did I, I'm sorry, yes, Satan is still deceiving the world, and uh, he is not bound at this point. I believe Christ, according to Psalm 110, has been told by the Father, stay seated until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, and when that day comes, Christ will rule and he will reign. I don't think he's reigning right now. I don't think there's, well, okay, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll pontificate later about those things. So amillennialism explained. Oh, no. Good grief. We're, in, we're into the last days already. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's five after 12. Okay, let me finish. Uh, okay. Rascals. Wow. Okay. Um, since God has always ruled in his kingdom, that's one assumption. Assumption number two, God's kingdom is being manifested today in the church. 
So then they make a couple of deductions. Number one, Israel and the church do not have distinct programs in God's economy. They share in one continuous program. God has a single overall program in the ages. Second deduction, the promises to Israel are applicable to the church. So their method is to spiritualize the prophecies about Israel to apply them to the church, arguing that the New Testament takes Old Testament passages spiritually and prophecy contains much figurative language. It could. It could. So here's that. Here's another chart. Um, again, for all millennialism, uh, the millennial reign of Christ is with the saints, whether it's in heaven or in the hearts of the saints on earth. And uh, the church on earth is in tribulation, and we it finishes with uh, the second coming. Okay. We're going to talk more about these things. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for your interest. Let's let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us your word. And although your word doesn't read like a textbook on eschatology, you do give us enough to understand the future and I believe to understand the sequence of those events that you've told us about, that we uh, await uh, in their coming. But even as we await, you've given us multiple visions of your son. In chapter 1 of the Revelation to John, Lord, you've shown us the majesty, the authority of your son standing in the midst of the churches and having an authoritative word to the churches. In chapter 5, you give us the conundrum of your son being presented as a slain lamb, yet opening the book of judgment. You're, you're, you're expressing to us such wonders about your son in the book of the Revelation to John. And there are questions we have, uh, um, perhaps regarding the timing, what does soon mean, and, and so forth. We have teachable spirits, Lord. We are curious, and um, we also, Father, as necessary, are corrigible. Correct us. Um, work in our hearts and our minds, sanctify us with prophecy, sanctify us with eschatology as we await these great events uh, to take place and our incomparable uh, Savior and King to return. We pray in his name. Amen. 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 Amen.